This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. We're in the midst of a wave of mass protests across the globe against economic austerity and neoliberal policies that only add to economic insecurity. States have increasingly used authoritarian repressive measures to crack down on the protests. Neoliberal capitalism is in severe crisis nearly everywhere, and simmering tensions have reached the boiling point in Iran, Iraq, Hong Kong, Chile, Ecuador, Colombia, France, and beyond. Today we're going to look at both the French and Iranian protest movements, two completely different cases where masses of people have taken to the streets and have faced the violent response from police and authorities, more deadly to be sure in Iran, and we examine the underlying issues motivating the protests. We begin with Stathis Kouvalakis in France to get his analysis of the scope and breadth of the protest movement that has paralyzed France since December 5th as railway and transport workers have been joined by teachers nurses, students, and yellow vests in strikes and demonstrations more than a million strong against President Macron's attacks on pension and the welfare state. The trade unions, yellow vests, youth, and other sectors have converged in the most powerful opposition movement seen in France in decades, resisting Macron's attempts to be the French Thatcher. We then turn to Iran, speaking to political sociologist Kevin Harris about the spectacular illegal protest movement there since November 15th. The government has responded brutally, killing at least 200 and arresting thousands. Not unlike the spark for the Yellow Vest movement in France over the last year, the Iranian protests began over the hike in gas prices. But economic insecurity, the breakup of the social contract, high inflation and negative economic growth were big factors. And the government shutdown of the Internet for a week only exacerbated discontent and added to the protests. As in France, movements have converged and pose a threat to the regime. We'll get Kevin Harris's analysis and more when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Welcome. And we are in the midst of a wave of mass protests literally all over the globe, against economic policies that promise the population a future of even more economic insecurity and authoritarian repressive regimes and systems. Neoliberal capitalism is in severe crisis everywhere, and simmering tensions have reached the boiling point in Iran, Iraq, Hong Kong, Chile, Ecuador, Colombia, France, and beyond. Today we're going to look at beginning with the protest movement in France where there has been literally a huge strike movement on Friday France was completely paralyzed as workers from teachers to train drivers, nurses and others revolted against Emmanuel Macron's attack on their pensions. He called it pension reform. And while he fancies himself as our guest says as the French Thatcher, his bid to tear up France's strong welfare state, now is facing its most powerful opposition yet. And we're saying that after a year of protests by the yellow vest or gilet jaune. Well, I'm really pleased that Stathis Kouvalakis is joining us today. He teaches political theory at King's College in London, but he lives in France, and he was on the Central Committee of Ceres in Greece. We talked to him a lot at that time. And he's the author and editor of many books, including La France in 
revolt. Stathis, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Hi, Suzanne. Very glad to have you here. And I know that there were events today in France, but I'd like you to perhaps begin with an overview of what has happened just this week and what's promised for the week to come. What are the main grievances? What are the forms of resistance? What are the social forces? In other words, just give us a brief sort of overview. Right. Okay. So the movement started last Thursday with mass strikes affecting many sectors, essentially in the public sector, but not only, and mass demonstrations across the country. So even the official figures concerning the demonstrations, let's start with this, are very impressive, about 800,000 according to uh, the Minister of the Interior and about 1.5 million according to the trade union. So we, we are talking about absolutely massive numbers, the most important since at least the last decade uh, perhaps even perhaps even more, and it's only the start of the movement. Now the mass strikes they started so on Thursday. The core of the strike is in the transport sector, so the railways are entirely paralysed. The metro and public transport in Paris and many other cities is totally paralysed. And in those sectors, it's an all-out strike, which means that you know it holds firm. Paris is paralysed, many other big cities as well. And to those sectors, there are. A few others where the strike is also continuous, uh, it's an all-out, more specifically in the oil refineries. In um, the education sector, it was massive on Thursday, less so on Friday, but it is expected to restart tomorrow because for tomorrow, the trade unions have announced another day of mass mobilization combining strikes and mass demonstrations. Uh, so tomorrow will be a very important day as well. Let me just add one more thing. Mm -hmm. This movement is like a big river in which smaller ones converge. The smaller ones, so to speak, although they are very significant and important, are the movement in the health sector, in public hospital, which has started last spring actually and is continuing against the appalling working conditions and pay in public hospital, subjected to cuts, of course, as you know, this happens nearly everywhere. It has intensified. And also an important student movement that has started a few weeks ago and has been stimulated, let's say, by the suicide of a student in Lyon, who before this attempted suicide, actually he's not dead, but in a very critical condition, he issued a statement, which is a very political one, saying that you know, his act is a protest against his living conditions, the fact that his scholarship has been cut, the fact that conditions of studying and precariousness uh, have become really intolerable, and uh, he ended up his statement saying, long live socialism, long live self-management. <laughs> so this has steered an important movement on campuses, and one of the main stakes is, of course, the convergence of all this, to which we should add the yellow vest movements, about which uh, I think you have already spoken in your program, which has agitated France last year, but has been continuing since, albeit at a lower level of mobilization. So we have many things actually coming together. Well, let's just go back, because that's an excellent overview, and it sounds much broader than, of course, what most of the press reports. But this began over pension reform. So are all of these sectors, you know, you mentioned students, nurses, healthcare, oil workers, transport workers. Is this something that affects them all, or is this just the spark that began it? And maybe you could just give an account of how central the pension system in France is to maybe 
maybe, you know, the whole notion of a, a welfare state. Yeah, I mean, France has the best system of pensions in Western Europe, the most efficient one, the one which protects best the pensioners from poverty. Just to give you an example, only 7% of pensioners in France are below the poverty rate. This percentage is 19% in Germany and the UK. So countries very much comparable Mm -hmm. to France. Also in France, uh, one can retire at the age of 62, provided, of course, that he has worked sufficiently uh, until that limit, although that age limit was 60 a few years ago, so it has worsened in that respect. What has been kept, however, is the fact that the level of the pension, the amount of the pension, is calculated on the very last year and even the last months of the salaries one one wage earner gets. So it means that it it has a very high level it covers very significantly the level of wages of everyone towards the end of her or his career, right? Mm. One of the major changes that Macron wants to introduce, actually, and which will affect everyone, I mean, this pension reform is for all wage earners, not just for one sector. Including that, pr- both um, pr- public and private, you're saying? All way, all... Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Public, and, public and private as well. Right. Uh, is that the average amount of pension will be calculated on the amount of wages, the average wage earned during an entire career. So it mm. will be a very, very significant drop for everyone. Some will be hit more than others, obviously. The teachers, for instance, have calculated that they will lose from six to 900 euros, which means even over um, $1,000 per month, which is, I mean, wow. absolutely yeah, enormous. Those who will also be very badly affected are those sectors in which people, wage earners, can workers can live earlier than in others because of the working conditions. And this is the case of the transport sector. In public transport, workers can retire if they have started sufficiently early at the age of 55 or 57. And with the new pension reform, this limit will be pushed up by at least three to five years. So this is what motivates, in a way, more those who are mobilized in that in those two sectors, railways and public transport. This is pretty amazing. And given that Macron was elected leading the charge against the welfare state in Europe, and you've written in your article in Jacobin that just appeared that France has the biggest welfare state in Europe, and you just stated it here too, and that it's been the center of anti-neoliberal protest in Europe literally from the beginning of neoliberalism, from the 80s, and that but Macron was elected to kind of break it up. And he's had a little bit of success, it seems, and you know, but not in the sense that we're seeing in other countries. Maybe you could just go over that, that sort of brief history of the French resistance to any of these uh, attacks on uh, salaries and, uh, and benefits, and then uh, what Macron thinks that he can go ahead and do. Well, um, I don't think that we have enough time, you know, to go through all those very important movements that happened in France since the mid-80s. But let me say that some of these movements, certainly not all, have succeeded, actually, at least partially in their, in their demands. For instance, as a student, myself, mm-hmm. in 1986, I participated in one of the biggest post-68 
student movements in, in France against an attempt to introduce tuition fees. And access to university and higher education in general is still free in France, which wow. is, you know, becomes more and more rare, actually, in uh, the, Western, the, the Western world. Equally, an attempt to change the pension system of uh, the workers in the transport sector in 1995 by the then right-wing government of uh, Chirac and, and, and Juppé failed because of a very long strike of the entire public sector, actually, not only the railways, which ended up by bringing down, actually, a year and a half later, that same government, which had been only recently elected. So there had been some successes in, in that respect. Now, Macron himself, as you know, his election was a complete surprise. He's yeah. a complete outsider in the, in the traditional political system. So his success in the polls is uh, due to the collapse of the, preview, of, of the previous political system in France, actually. So Macron is the outcome of this. Uh, the traditional, the two traditional political forces, Social Democrats and the traditional right, which alternated in power in France since the 1980s, both of them have, have collapsed. So the combined, their combined vote in the last presidential elections was barely 25%, right? Mm. So Macron was elected on that kind of void created by both the collapse of social democracy and of the moderate traditional right. And he was elected not because people agreed on his program, which didn't appear openly as such a right, but was clearly very neoliberal and very uh, pro-business in terms of its uh, agenda, but essentially because they were afraid of the possibility of having the far right being elected. Uh, so Macron barely got 24% of the vote in the first round of the presidential election, but was elected with two-thirds of the vote in the second round because he was confronted to Marine Le Pen, the leader of the French far-right National Front Party. And uh, because of that new type of polarization of the French political system, the extreme center to... Mm -hmm. <laughs> repeat uh, a term forged by Tari Kelly, uh, thinks that he can win elections, although his own proposals and agenda are very much a minority in public opinion, just because the only significant adversary in electoral terms is the far right. And this is something that we've covered fairly well right here. But given all of that, that Macron was this kind of surprise outsider and that people elected him more to avoid Marine Le Pen, as you said, and not because they were in favor of his breaking up the welfare state and introducing Thatcherite reforms. Nonetheless, he's had some success, but he's also faced some of the biggest protest movements that we've seen in decades in France. And he's also met these protest movements, as you've written in New Left Review and elsewhere with the Gilets Jaunes, with extreme violence. Now we have this brand new sort of movement coming up. And I'd like you to maybe just describe it. You started out by saying that it's very broad, that it includes workers, key sectors of workers, but also students. And is it completely focused on say, pension reform. What are the grievances, the main important grievances that are bringing everyone together? Well, I think that, I mean, a recent opinion poll showed that among the people who participate in the movement, 30% are on strike or take to the streets because of the pension reform as their priority, and 70% to protest against the overall policy of the government, which means that there is more than the pensions that is at stake. And 
indeed the workers in the health sector, the students, the workers in oil refineries, uh, another sector that is massively and on an all-out strike since Thursday. So all these people have, so to speak, more specific grievances, but actually all of them are unified under a very simple heading, which is uh, resistance to neoliberalism, resistance to austerity, resistance to cuts affecting very badly and increasingly so uh, the public sector, uh, protest against the increasing precariousness of the working uh, conditions and living conditions of, of, of the people. So it is this world that is that is rejected. In 2016, so only three years ago, there was a big movement initiated by the trade unions essentially, but joined by sectors of the youth, against a neoliberal reform of the labor law, which finally passed. I mean, this movement, this movement failed, but it lasted for several months as well, combining one-day strikes and street demonstrations. Was and one of the main slogans of that movement was that we are against the law and this law, and it's this proposed law, and the world that generated it. Huh? Uh, Against the labor law and its world was the, the slogan. And this brought together uh, so youth it, and, it, and trade unions, the Nuit Debout, and the, was it not, was against neoliberalism, but was, more, was against the labor reform, as you said. Yeah, the labor reform was clearly an attempt to deregulate the labor market. Uh, France also has one of the most, uh, or had until recently, one of the most protective labor legislation in, in Europe as well. So this is now not entirely, but to a great extent, unfortunately, passed because of these successive reforms attempted first by François Hollande, the former socialist president, and then continued by, by Emmanuel Macron. However, the experience of those recent movements, the movement against the labor law and then the Yellow Vest movement, have translated, I mean, have, as it were, stimulated the movement now. Uh, they have steered the combativity of many social sectors and they have shown that this anger, popular anger is very widespread and diffuse in French society. There is a clear perception that the majority of the people don't want actually this policy. And I think this is what resonates very deeply with other revolts that we see across the world, as you mentioned initially. I mean, it's entirely this neoliberal capitalism that is rejected by the people. And the big question, of course, is which political force is able to um, express, to, to, to articulate this, uh, this rejection. Well, Stathis, this is really important. And one thing that you've stressed now is how widespread the discontent is, but also that these various movements that began with young people against the labor law, that went united with the trade union movement, and then the yellow vests, which were thought to be outside of it in a way because they weren't centered in Paris and they were beginning over the higher gas prices. But now, are you saying that they are the leaders or let's say the instigators, the spark in a way for this larger movement? But would you say now that this is being led by the trade union movement? Yes. Of the current movement, the leadership of the movement is certainly the trade union leadership, uh, which is a complicated matter in France because contrary to other countries, particularly in the Anglophone world, the trade union movement is fragmented. There, there is not one single confederation of the trade unions, but many different ones with distinct ideological, political, and uh, cultures, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a combative and a much less combative sector of the trade union movement, and it's very difficult for all of them to coordinate, actually. So, but for the moment, let's say that all the combative sectors of the trade union movement have managed to find a common 
platform. So that's one element. But what the Yellow Vest movement has brought, as well as the previous movement, is a more combative tone, actually, is an awareness of the necessity that you cannot just strike for one day in those kind of ritualized one days of protest uh, followed by a routinized demonstration and so on. Something that is, you know, more protracted, something that is durable, something that is continuous, and something that is much more confrontational is necessary, especially since, as you have mentioned before, all these movements are faced with a very heavy police repression, I mean, of, of the kind we haven't seen since the late 60s, more, more certainly. Right, and this has been really astonishing, I think, and we're seeing it worldwide, and it's seeing it, you know, in Chile, where they're blinding protests, protesters, of course, in the Middle East, it's been far more brutal, but to see it in what we think of as, you know, the uh, sectors like in France, where demonstrations are so much a part of life and upsurges from time to time that have not been dealt with so violently. And I think one question is that it must represent a huge threat. But on the other hand, it also shows Macron is not business as usual in this respect. So given all of that, and you're saying that the yellow vests have become the kind of, you know, the spark, is Do you see this new movement as aiming to become a kind of mass strike, a class-wide militant political strike in line with, say, what Rosa Luxemburg would be writing about, or is that premature? Okay, I think the crucial question is, and that will determine, I think, the outcome of this movement, is whether other sectors will join the railway workers and the transport workers plus a few other but more limited sectors in a mass strike. Mm -hmm. So other sectors in the public sector, but also in the private sector. There is a participation, or there was last Thursday, uh, a level of participation, let's say, of the private sector in the, in the strike movement. But, of course, it was a much more limited one than in the, in the private sector. Um, now, this needs to go up uh, if uh, we want a success. I mean, the... If, if the strike itself is isolated only in the sector of transport, um, it is not very likely that uh, the government will make concessional or even withdraw its, its, its reform. So to have a dynamic of mass strike, the strike itself needs to expand to other sectors. And of course, the street demonstrations are an essential levy to go into that direction. So tomorrow demonstration, because, you know, the convergence materializes concretely in the mass demonstrations in the streets, right? If you mm. have, you know, tomorrow one million people in taking to, to, to the streets, then concretely you will have railway workers, private sector workers, public sector workers, students, yellow vests, I mean, all these people converging, this is what we have already seen on Thursday, but, you know, it needs to continue and even to cross a certain threshold, actually, in order to gain momentum and lead to success. Can you go back just a little bit, because this is introducing a whole new sort of, as you mentioned, it converges, uh, Stathis Kouvalakis, but, I, but you've written extensively about the Yellow Vests, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what kind of innovation they were in the French political scene, especially because they represented people across France, outside of the big urban centers. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about what that year-long, you know, every week protest did in terms of changing French political perceptions, militancy, combativity. What were their triumphs? What were their limits? All of that. Well, I mean, of course, we would need time, I mean, to develop all these points. But let me mention briefly the fact that one of the main innovations of the movement was the fact that 
entirely new layers participated for the first time in collective action. And those so-called new layers, new in the sense of their participation, of course, in collective action, were not exclusively, but essentially working class people of peripheral France, because this is where a very huge part of the productive activities of the country are, you know, the so-called deindustrialization, mm-hmm. which is to a large extent an illusion, just means that, you know, the, the, the industrial activities have become more diffuse, actually, in the territory. So peripheral doesn't mean that, you know, they are peripheral, they are outside production and productive activities, quite on the contrary. They are very central to the new decentralized form that production takes in a contemporary advanced economy like the, the, the French one. So these sectors had absolutely no tradition of trade union organization. They were even, you know, reluctant or hostile to trade unions. They have no experience of collective action. And still they found new ways. They were gathering, you know, in those ronds-points, in the roundabouts, in, uh, um, in, in the highways, starting initially with a seemingly very modest demand about the uh, hike of a... Uh, tax on gas and, and another one on pensions, actually, but very, very quickly, actually, a, a week after the start of this um, uh, movement uh, last November, uh, it was clear that the demands became much, much broader. It was about social and fiscal justice, and it was also about filling the gap, I mean, the void, the democratic void that exists in the country, right? So there was a very deep rejection of the political system, and... Um, a kind of reflection, let's say, or demands about increasing, finding ways of increasing popular participation in uh, public affairs. So demands about referendums initiated by uh, the citizenry, uh, forms of direct participation, uh, local control of, of, of decisions. So all these very all these demands were very powerfully expressed, and they address, actually, not only, you know, the social and economic side of neoliberalism, but also the fact that neoliberalism, which is increasingly authoritarian, has destroyed, you know, democracy, even the very limited form of democracy we used to have in, let's say, our liberal parliamentary regimes. Yeah, this is very, very important. And one thing that I, you know, was thinking about as you were talking about how critical this new sector is, that it isn't the traditional trade union movement, yet it's the center of the working class as we see it today. Has it, and you mentioned that in this, you know, in these new protests, they're unified, but this time it's being called by the trade unions. And so what, can you talk just a little bit about that sort of alliance between the the yellow vests and the trade unions and the broader movements? Are the unions really kind of up to leading that, or is that something that you'll see on a sort of more democratic uh, across sort of leadership role? How do you see it? And maybe what kind of organizations are springing up in order to address this new situation? Look, the the main sectors have realized that their previous conduct of action is limited and uh, has been unable to bring significant results. So the trade union and their leadership, more importantly, have realized that, you know, the, these ritualized one-day strikes, blah, blah, and this routine doesn't deliver. The yellow vests on their side have also realized that despite their initial expectations that, you know, they would change everything, that they would get all their demands, actually they got very little, if anything, actually, from, from Macron, and therefore everyone needs to join forces in order to build a broader uh, movement and only 
uh, in that way, uh, will it be possible actually to get a real success and to inflict uh, a defeat on government and his, um, uh, his government and his, um, uh, his, his policies? Uh, so, uh, you know, that's one thing. The second thing is that uh, this strike, and everyone agrees, uh, even the mainstream media agrees, it's the rank and file that leads it. This means that uh, now the leadership of the trade unions, for the moment, it works, let's say, but it is constantly under surveillance from below. So what is decisive is uh, the General Assembly at each workplace. So every morning or around noon, the railway uh, workers uh, uh, hold their General Assemblies at their workplace same thing for public transport in uh, Paris and, and, and in the other big cities. Same thing in oil refineries and so on. So this very this decisive weight of uh, the General Assemblies means that um, the impulse for the strike comes from below and that the strikers and the workers, they want to control themselves uh, the strike. And they will certainly express their views if a kind of deal is proposed, for instance, by the leadership to the rank and file. Well, this is the most exciting thing you've said so far, Stathis Kuvalakis, that in fact that it is the leadership from below that is forging, you know, sort of the agenda of the struggle. And that's very exciting indeed. Can Maybe you could just finish by saying how, if there is any traditional left left in France, how it's responding, or is this literally a new movement with, you know, new organizational forms that we're seeing in embryo? The left is weak and fragmented, and it can only be regenerated in a way from conjunction of movements from below and sensible political initiatives from what remains from the political organizations. But for me, you know, the main source of hope is what we have seen since last Thursday, and is continuing actually, which is those general assemblies not only talking and deciding on the strike, but going to other workplaces, going to neighborhoods, we'll see railway workers going to school, going to public administration, going to campuses, which was, had already started in 2016, actually, uh, to call the people there, to call the workers, to call the other sectors, to call the students, actually, to join forces and to build a broader movement. I think this is the key for the success and for the victory of what has started last Thursday. Stathis Kuvalakis, thank you for that incredible overview and analysis of what is going on at this very instance in France. And if you want to read more, you can look at his article on Jacobin. It's called Emmanuel Macron Wants to End the French Exception. Stathis teaches political theory at King's College in London, commuting everywhere, it looks like, living in France, was on the Central Committee of Syriza in Greece, and is the author and editor of many books, but now including La France in Revolt, I mentioned the Jacobin article and look up his article on the Gilets Jaunes or Yellow Vest in New Left Review. Stathis, thank you so much for joining us and for giving us that analysis. Thank you. Thank you, Susie. Thanks so much. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away.
Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to continue in this analysis of the literal wave of protest all across the globe against economic policies that have promise the population a future that have cut off, in fact, the future and have led to more economic insecurity and the authoritarian repressive regime response that we've seen. We just talked about France. But in Iran, the protests have taken on not just an economic grievance, but an anti-regime stance. And it's not unlike the spark for the Yellow Vest movement in France that we just spoke of. Over the last year, the Iranian protests began over a hike in gas prices. And as in France, the protest was also about economic insecurity and in Iran, high inflation, negative economic growth. But unlike France, these protests are illegal because people are not allowed to engage in anti-government demonstrations. And the government responded brutally. Uh, We have noticed that perhaps 200 were killed. Thousands have been arrested. The internet was shut down. And so we're going to be looking at that. And I'm very pleased to have Kevin Harris with us. He is a historical sociologist at UCLA. He studies developmental social policy and political economy of the global south. His first book is A Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran, and that's by UC Press. And he also co-edited The Social Question in the 21st Century, A Global View. He's on the editorial committee of Merup. He does a lot more than that. And I've invited him to speak with us today about the protest movement in Iran. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Susie. Very good. So let's just talk about this protest movement that swept across Iran. And that, you know, as I mentioned, that it began with gas prices uh, that were uh, used to offset a budget deficit at a time of high inflation, negative economic growth. Of course, the sanctions are not irrelevant here. But that we saw an incredible response where the population and protesters clashed with security forces, set government buildings and banks on fires, blocked the roads. And the government responded with, you know, brutally with an iron fist, killing more than 200. So can you give us an account of what's been happening over the last several weeks and how it burst into that? The first thing to understand, especially for those who don't follow news of protests in Iran closely, and that's most people outside of Iran, is that over the last 10 years, really since the 2009 election, post-election protests known as the Green Movement, there's been arguably a rising level of both everyday contention, uh, organized movement politics, and a lot of conflict in Iranian society. And that includes labor protests, that includes protests by pensioners. So protest over the social contract, as you mentioned is also going on, you know, basically most of the world today. And so that's been a rising level. And so there have been a lot of local level protests where organized and unorganized uh, groups and individuals, you know, often people who are employed by the state or have linkages to government or their families do, show up and, and, and protest against something or another, including huge teacher strikes that happened in 2017 and 18. Um, pensioners, etc. So that is an important background that, you know, Iran is not a society that, that sees no protest, as alien to protest. In fact, it's becoming uh, a really contentious society and engaging in protest politics. So we also need to remember that over about, about a year and a half ago, 2000, late 2017 to early 2018, there was kind of a miniature version uh, of a protest wave that occurred that also expressed a lot, you know, a range of grievances um, in many, many cities, both large and small, 
related to um, you know the erosion of the social contract, uh, whether it was pensions, um, environmental issues, wages, uh, and of course political uh, representation. So, so that and, and many intellectuals in the side of Iran, both on the left as well as kind of this liberal intellectuals, said that you know if if um, if kind of either the social contract is not renewed in this state of stagnation and erosion uh, of linkages between everyday individual life uh, and and the political faction Iran continues, this will happen again. And so it happened again. And there is a commonality between these protests in the past and what happened recently in Iran, in as much as the you know there's not it's not a mon, there's not a monolithic. Um, uh, party state in the in the in the revolutionary Iran. Uh, Iran was the only 20th century revolution, uh, social revolution that did not produce a kind of one party state. Instead, you have political factions that compete, that win and lose. They change their coalitions, but uh, they tend to use uh, protest politics against each other. And that actually kind of occurred this time as well. It's a little bit underreported, but the very first day. Uh, November fifteenth, uh, when the when the gas prices were announced to be to be increased, which was generally agreed upon by all of the sections of the government that are in power today. Nevertheless, once protests became apparent, like basically right thereafter, you know, basically people woke up that morning, saw the gas prices were high, and realized that someone down the street was yelling or maybe even throwing uh, a rock at a gas at a petrol station. Protests began, and then the the political uh, elite began to blame each other, which is a common. Uh, <laughs> tactic in politics in general, and and uh, and in fact, uh, you know, as before, particular segments of the of the political factions are tried to essentially ride the tiger of protests, as you and I know, and people who study you know <laughs> politics know when when politicians try to ride the tiger, well, sometimes the tiger bucks them off, and that's what happened this time in Iran. These protests spread so widely, so fast. Um, on that very, very first day, that that uh, those those both intellectuals and politicians, the side of the government, linked to the government, that thought it might have been a good idea in order to discredit uh, the current president of Iran uh, and his kind of you know team of experts, all of a sudden realized it was getting out of hand, and then the more repressive side of um, of the response became uh, I think became a priority, including highly unprecedented measures by. The government to shut off access to the outside world uh, via internet, and of course that destroyed the ability of businesses inside Iran to do business with each other. Uh, you know, lots of people use things like Telegram and WhatsApp just to do business. So they shut down. So it really affected everybody in Iran, and you know, while it may have prevented the coordination of some types of protest. On the other hand, it probably woke a lot of people up and said, you know, well, now I have time. I'm not going to spend all day on the Internet. I'm going to go outside and see what happens. So we actually don't know whether this actually limited the spread of protests or maybe it might have contributed to people going outside and, 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 and uh, commiserating with their fellow fellow citizens. So that's the, that's the background for this, what I would consider definitely an austerity protest. I want to call it that. Um, and then over the four, over the four to five days, which um, – and which to continue, you know, the number of cities uh, in which something took place, uh, whether a rally or you know street stopping or or destruction of property, probably over 200 cities. So in relationship to previous protests in Iran, protest waves, the scale is much higher. Um, the uh, repression by the state using live fire against uh, crowds of people to disperse crowds to back people away from 
public property, from banks, from petrol stations, and including a few uh, government, uh, army barracks and military uh, outposts was extreme and also seems to have shocked uh, both Iranian society and uh, members of the political elite themselves, who have been spending the last week, again, blaming each other and claiming that they were not the ones who ordered anyone to shoot. So the fallout from this inside of Iran, um, we cannot predict, uh, but it's probably going to continue <clears throat> to, uh, you know, basically result in these politicians blaming each other, and it may pr- produce a kind of reshuffling of Iranian politics at the top. Well, you've given so much there, Kevin Harris, and I want to just say, you know, you've also kind of punctured the the myths that exist about Iran, that it is a sort of monolithic, uh, revolutionary Islamic regime, uh, even if there's been various factions we know of reformists and, and more hardline sectors. Um, also, I want to ask you, too, about, like, you know, how Iran up till now has used elections to quell dissent, perhaps, and how this is different. But I think the other new thing that you just introduced was that the way that various sectors within the elite use the demonstrations to attack each other. Um, But then that brings up the question of, um, you know, the repression. Is this uh, more repressive than before? And um, has this protest movement, as you see it, uh, spread beyond just the uh, breaking of the social contract, as you said, or the deteriorating economic conditions? Or is it also about a larger dissatisfaction with the regime and the Islamic Republic overall? Well, these are great questions. And I want to add one more myth that I've been becoming increasingly dissatisfied over the last few years in the way in which the kind of state society... um, relationship has been explained outside of Iran, especially using class analysis. Mm-hmm. It's, been a lo- it's been a long trope in um, both, uh, I think, analysts of Iran and even scholars of Iran, and then I think also leftists uh, who argue that the survival of the Islamic Republic um, over the last 40 years has occurred because the state has uh, used oil revenue to um, create a social base among the poorest of society. Um, and you know, I read this all the time. It's the poor, it's the religious, it's the kind of rural or lower uh, uh, kind of lumpen proletariat that mm-hmm. uh, that, offer, that that exists as the main social base for the state, and everyone else is alienated. I that may have been true in the 80s uh, when a lot of people were being mobilized in the revolution and in the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s. But I really think over the last 20 years that does not accurately portray. Um, the linkages between state and society in Iran. Arguably, it's actually the lower classes in Iran that have have uh, less and less uh, relationships with the state, other than basically military conscription, which they do, you know, but they, they don't actually fight anymore. And it's actually the middle, the kind of middle strata uh, of Iranian society that have the most linkages to the state, and that doesn't actually determine their politics. Their politics is quite divided. You have a lot of people who are young that uh, are big defenders of the government, and they might be involved in this or that, uh, you know, government organization. You have people also, and they're also highly educated. You have people on the other hand who also look kind of look. They consume the same. They have the same education in some ways, but they're highly anti-state. So I think that the action is in this middle strata in terms of you know people that are highly involved in politics, and on the bottom you have a have a deep, deep uh, delinking 
of everyday lives and people's visions of the future from the state. And that is a, I've never read anything good about this, by the way, but it's, it's a hangover. I think it's a hangover from our vision of Iran in the 1980s. So I see these protests um, as one more sign of the fact that kind of the channels of mobilization Mm. that were linked to political movements in Iran, whether movements that were started inside of state politics or on the, on the fringe of state politics, or even by you know, intellectuals that saw themselves as anti-state, those have, I don't think anybody, a lot of people involved on the ground these protests don't see themselves as linked to that. And that ties into what you were talking about earlier, that you know, when these kind of factions compete with, against each other and they, they use mobilizational politics against each other, um, that that's a model of doing politics, not only Iran, but in lots of countries, uh, and that seems to be breaking down also. And instead, you were getting these kind of unorganized uh, protests that, that sometimes will concatenate into what we just saw. And in that sense, the way that the state responds is repression, as opposed to form a party, not a state repression. But uh, it's the breakdown of this earlier model of Iranian politics, which was also highly contentious highly unpredictable, but involve these kind of vertical relationships between political factions um, and parts of society. And that seems to be breaking down, and instead we're getting um, a kind of, you know, um, there's always been the discourse in Iran of all these guys are the same, throw the bums out. Right. But, but it seems to be a much deeper dissatisfaction and alienation from from anybody uh, associated with the state now. One of the things, though, Kevin, is that what we're seeing in Iran, perhaps Iraq and, and maybe in uh, Chile, too, is that protesters are being met with really brutal repression, and it isn't stopping them. And, it, it, and the question then becomes, uh, is this the only instrument that the regime seems to have to try to curtail the repression? Um, are there economic concessions or political concessions that are on offer, or is this just something that they're trying to just continually destroy? In other words, try to prevent people from protesting. But as you just said, it's extended far more, and it even incorporates sectors that before, you know, would have been seen as uh, part of the uh, support for the regime. I think that there, I mean, there, there will be concessions. The, the, the model, I mean, it's a pretty common model, but with the left hand and the right hand of the state, as we mm -hmm. say, so the right hand yeah. is the repression, and then the, sometimes leaders are just people who ended up on the street, ended up in jail, and then have to, you know, kind of cry and beg to get out. Um, and then, and then the left hand uh, comes right thereafter, and that actually is apparent uh, in, in some of the responses. There have been discussions again among Iranian, among the Iranian political elite, of allowing public protest as long as it is, you know, nonviolent. Allowing it, giving outlets for public dissatisfaction. Uh, in the budget, there's in the new budget announced uh, a couple of days ago, there was a hike in public sector wages, uh, not commiserate with the inflation rate of the last several years. Nevertheless, there was, of course, stressed by the by the by the president. Um, the uh, the rise in gas prices was not just a politics of austerity, although um, uh, it, I, I do think that term is accurate in as much as, uh, you know, because of the geopolitical strictures on Iran, as well as the particular individuals who are actually uh, in power in the executive branch now, they do see the, uh, the idea of fiscal uh, discipline in their terms as a kind of 
prudent way of running the country, and that means uh, bringing the price of fuel and other staple goods up to global market prices and then using that income, which the state was largely spending on subsidizing consumption, using that revenue on other uh, spending priorities, including, which, you know, let's give the government credit, at least in Iran, they do have this program of uh, cash transfers that was started under um, a conservative government in 2011 that at the time, you know, when it first was introduced, was supposed to use money that was previously spent on gas uh, and subsidizing gas to spend on cash transfers. And that actually had an impact on inequality in Iran when it was first introduced. But that has been inflated away over the last few years and uh, supposedly the funds freed up from the subsidization of gas are now going to go back into these cash transfers, which might have an impact on poverty and inequality again. Nevertheless, you know, these kind of policies, when they're not communicated well, and when there's a deep distrust uh, of, of, uh, of politicians, it's understandable that, you know, I wake up in the morning, basically maybe my business runs on the fact that gas is the one of the things that I don't have to pay too much for, or I live on uh, a suburb of a huge city like Tehran or Isfahan where I have to drive an hour, an hour and a half every day to get to work, or I have to pick up 20 people and move all these things all day. That is a huge input into my livelihood, and then, of course, you know, I wake up one day and the price is now three times as high, and uh, I basically say, that's it, you know, that's it. So, it, so in that sense, the austerity part is correct. Um, and uh, the left hand of the state uh, is now in action, and um, we'll see. But, but you know, without a, without a deeper renewal of, I think, the social contract, which includes also um, outlets for expression, uh, political organiz- allow- the allowing for political organization uh, in which, you know, ideological currents are, are given voice, including for, you know, social democracy, renewal of social contract, uh, all the things that many people in Iran, uh, you know, really have demanded in, in in these protests. Then, you know, I think I think this the, the prediction of more of the same uh, is a is a valid one. What about the role of the very draconian U.S. sanctions? I mean, if, here from you know this side of the Atlantic, and perhaps Trump looks at this with glee, thinking my policies are working. Is that from the way you've described it? You did you barely mentioned it, so I wondered if if that's part of the equation. Yeah, so you know, this is a this is a um, a question about moving parts, and there are moving parts on the outside of the country that need to be taken into account to understand how we get the kind of strictures uh, mm-hmm. on the economy and the political and the political economy of Iran. Um, but there are also moving parts on the inside that also need to be taken into account. I think you know the debate, or let's say that one version of the debate which tends to occur in the Western public sphere uh, on the left is it's all outside forces. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm strawmanning here, but it's all outside or mm-hmm. it's all inside. Even if you had a totally open environment where, you know, the Islamic Republic was, was integrated in the world economy and didn't have stri- geopolitical strictures, everything would be the same in Iran. That's one what, thing what, here. Or alternatively, um, the strictures outside are working, uh, and we need to have solidarity only with people in Iran, and we can't say anything about the government. Uh, and in that sense, it's kind of also a bit one-sided. So, so getting these two right and understanding the relationship between is difficult. Um, one thing we do know uh, is that um, the nuclear agreement uh, between uh, Iran and the it's kind of P5 plus one, so these five mm-hmm. powers, uh, Security Council plus Germany, 
uh, that agreement, you know, had a, a, a bunch of provisions for allowing in, you know, capital uh, to uh, inside of the Iranian economy. And um, the Iranian government, uh, the Rouhani administration of Hassan Rouhani, really put all their eggs in that basket. You know, they, they negotiated the agreement. Um, they made big promises in Iranian society. They thought this was also going to be a weapon inside of the Iranian political environment to, to beat off their conservative critics. Uh, and they also won, you know, a re-election based on this in 2017. Uh, and so when the, when the outside environment changed, when this agreement was ripped up, uh, the Trump administration then basically they didn't do a 180. By no means, there was already lots of strictures on Iran from the United States. But you know, the Trump administration had this, what we call it a policy, had this pipe dream that if you, you know, strangle a country's economy enough, you're going to get a basically 1989, you know, uh, check uh, velvet revolution. Yeah. That was the dream. That's the pipe dream. They, and, and that was essentially they said we're just going to have to wait. You know, we just do this and wait, and then we don't do any. You know, we don't. Uh, we don't do anything else, and we definitely don't uh, negotiate with Iran. So that 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 did change the calculus for lots of different political actors inside of Iran. Um, and uh, there was both, obviously, on the economic side of things, the state uh, both uh, had to engage, had to, and already kind of was engaging in an austerity politics, lowering state spending, cutting off uh, you know the spigot to some parts of the public sector, um, letting inflation eat away. The, the social wage that was definitely going on. Um, and so really a lot, of course, a lot of the tensions and grievances uh, were exacerbated in Iran because of this austerity uh, process. However, you, know, you, just can't, you can't say that politics doesn't, you know, basically stops inside of a country uh, because of this uh, external environment. Inside of Iran, the kind of centrist, uh, technocratic, um, political coalition around the Rouhani government has been taking criticism from all sides, saying you trusted the United States, you're a bunch of idiots, don't you understand, we call them the great Satan for a reason, you know, that, you know, that why right. are we trusting them, we, we were, you know, we warned you, and now we're right, and um, so, you know, depending on who you believe, he's either he or those associated with him are actually very unpopular inside of Iran, the kind of more conservative, um, uh, segments of the political leader are, are kind of foaming at the mouth, getting ready to kick all these guys out of the government and take back over um, segments of the state, such as the executive branch. As we remember from 2005 to about 2009, that's not very good for things that progressives care about when conservatives run the politics in Iran. That's not good for labor movements. It's not good for women's rights. It's not good for students and intellectuals um, and, uh, and civil society. So... So this is going to have, I think, the knockout effect of a, of a conservative consolidation, driven in part by uh, these increased geopolitical strictures, is leading to a downward spiral in Iranian political economy, which is not going to look like the Velvet Revolution of the neoconservative pipe dream, but it's not going to also be this um, progressive social revolution on the inside that's unorganized and somehow looks like we want on the outside. Well, given all of that, Kevin Harrison, I think this is fascinating. You've mentioned the various sectors, and of course, it's really interesting to see how much this resembles the movements itself, the rest of the anti-neoliberal protests and anti-austerity protests around the world. But the other thing is, we don't know very much about, you know, internal politics in Iran. And you mentioned different elite factions fighting each other using mobilizational 
politics. You also mentioned a left, which we hear very little about. And we also see, you know, lots of people in the streets that are not just men, but also some women. I want to know from you if you could just basically kind of describe. And I know, sorry, just to go back for a second, because when we saw the Green Movement, we did see, you know, all kinds of people coming together in it, artists, imprisoned leaders, reformist politicians, somewhat moderate sometimes. But now, can you describe in terms of, say, age, class, employment, and educational status, you know, this movement, and is it part of this worldwide youth that we're seeing that are protesting the cutoff of their own futures because of the precarity, or is this, you know, something else? And I realize that it's hard to know this from outside, but you're watching it every day. Yeah, well, let's let me say something that does that that these protests do remind me of in in other parts of the world. As you're right, we're living through a you know wave of protests around the world. It's global, at least in scale. It is not certainly organized globally by any means. But, you know, um, these tend to be leaderless. Uh, they tend to uh, lack a kind of coherent organizational structure. Maybe they're tied to er- earlier civil society organizations or left organizations, but they're not certainly um, coordinated by them. Uh, they lack coherent kind of political and socioeconomic kind of platforms. Um, and uh, they usually operate around keywords like corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or in other parts of the world, maybe something like neoliberalism. Okay, so that's a commonality, and I personally, this is my opinion, uh, that doesn't bode well for the future of these movements organizationally and politically. Um, I do believe in parties and party organizations and the and the way and the, and the and you know, how parties work, whether they're underground parties or whether they're cadre based. Um, but you know, something about organization matters um, because you can't just do all this online. And, you know, coming face-to-face is important. Uh, if you look at the videos uh, that at least have been verified from the uh, protests in Iran over the, uh, you know, from mid-November onward, which I've watched, um, you know, it's, it's always good as a kind of leftist and as an analyst, uh, as an interest in social movements. So look, which look at the videos? Don't look at the actual part where there's the violence occurring or someone's throwing the rock, but look at all the people around them. Uh, sometimes the video pans out. That's usual. It's not that useful. Sometimes it pans right in, and you don't get to see the people on the outskirts. But it's good to look at who's there. These are people who might have come uh, because they knew something was going to happen. They might be there because they heard it uh, through you know, rumor, or they were just walking there. But nevertheless, you can get a sense of okay, who's who's around. And so, if you watch the videos of these protests, these are not like I said earlier. These are these are not the poorest of the poor in Iran. And and um, in fact, many of them. It, based on the way they're dressing, it's actually very hard to tell uh, their class. Um, you know, you can tell maybe by where the protest is, but, you know, sometimes you can't. So uh, that's the thing about urban protests. Modern urban protests pull in people, um, especially when they're face-to-face and they're in real, they're in the real life, not online. Uh, sometimes they include a lot of individuals who never would have been involved in, uh, in uh, beforehand. So it's very difficult to tell. Certainly, it's not just youth. Youth people all there. There are were a lot of young people in these protests. Many of the deaths that have been recorded uh, are of young people, but not all of them. Not all of them. There actually are quite a few uh, female protesters. Um, when uh, and obviously repression drives away a lot of people. So you can see from these videos that there are women present. Sometimes women are the ones who stand in between the kind of riot cops uh, and and the more, you know, uh, militant uh, uh, male members of the protest, which is actually, of course, very common. 
protest tactic. So I'm, I think that there's a, there's a pretty interesting mix. Um, and uh, there were also protests in Tehran at University of Tehran, which is a kind of hub of elite student, uh, you know, student life. And they were protesting austerity politics, protesting the repression of the state. Uh, and when they, I mean, uh, at least a couple hundred students were locked in the university for, for a while. From the videos we have, so so I say I think that, that the tendency uh, sometimes is that we we want to ascribe um, like a, a pretty large wave of protest. Even the state admits that some two hundred thousand people may have been you know outside at one time uh, protesting to a particular class. But um, you know the thing about this it's 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 a bit uh, it's so dispersed it's really unorganized. And in that sense, while there may be, you know, a kind of modal individual, you know, a particular type of person that tends to be more likely to show up, I don't know. Because, you know, the reason people go to protests is they bring their families, they, they, they go because of the networks they're tied into. It's not just an atomized individual who just goes and throws a Molotov cocktail. There are deep social linkages which bring you to, uh, to a protest site often. Um, and judging, you know, I also, so I just do, I, I want to push back and say that this is either a protest of the working class or the precariat or, or alternatively the middle class, which is a term which I have become increasingly more skeptical about when used on these, uh, these middle income country protests. So I think actually that, that it, since it's hard to pin down for a reason, and that is because, um, you know, things like uh, consumption politics, the social contract, um, the way that austerity affects individuals, uh, and the and the decreasing uh, articulation between political organizations uh, and, and and mass society that affects lots of different types of people, and because of that, I, I think the protests are, are composed of lots of different types of people, and it requires maybe even a bit more conceptual thinking on the left to to think about how these two things are linked to each other as we move forward. Really great. Now, just one final little item. Is this ongoing or is it over for the present? The kind of upsurge seems to be over. You know, there were some parts of the country that actually were offline in that sense or kind of radius on even longer. And we're still getting stories about what has happened in these places, including kind of uh, company towns and industrial cities in the south that really were kind of on lockdown for a while. And, you know, these places, clearly, individuals in these places feel very alienated from, from the state. But I really do not think they have a kind of organizational alternative. So it, it's, in that sense, it's over for now. But the downward spiral that I mentioned earlier is going on. And there are elections next year for parliament in the spring. And there are going to be politics around that, maybe not discussed outside or maybe discussed outside of Iran as a sham. But the politics around that, I think they'll really involve, again, different segments of the political elite blaming each other for this, attempting to mobilize around it. And as usual, when these things happen in Iran, opportunities arise for either protest or some type of politics from below, at least to have a voice. So that might be the next time period in which um, one would want to look at to, to look at the balance of forces. And we'll definitely look in at it with you, Kevin Harrison. I want to thank you for that excellent, terrific overview and uh, deeper understanding, really, of what's happening inside Iran. I think it's going to open up a lot of people's eyes. Kevin is a historical sociologist at UCLA. He has a book called A Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran by UC Press. He also edited The Social Question in the 21st Century, A Global View. He's on the editorial committee of Merup. He does so much more. But thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin Harris on Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. And don't go away. 
Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.